I think um, Elizabeth is well written in this film. Do you? I mean, in the sense that, like, she is just the girlfriend character, but, like, there is strength to her and in, like, you know, domestic goddessy kind of way. Mm. Like, I think she's compelling, and I think part of that is, like, uh, her dialogue is well written. Part of it is she's played by Helena Bonham Carter, mm. who back when she was you know, not a crazy character actress, like, was very good at just giving nuanced performances. Yeah, I really like um, Helena Bottom Carter's acting in this, but I just don't find her particularly... Like you said, she is the girlfriend character, um, and she... Mm like, always seems to be supportive of Victor, which I guess is her role in the novel as well. But I don't find that to be particularly interesting. And then I think what's more interesting is her death um, Mm. in that she, I guess, like, in a way that she doesn't have a lot of agency in the novel, she actually does have more agency here. Um... Yeah, she kind of indirectly has agency in her first death because she's the one who says to Victor, marry me today, tell me everything tomorrow, after he's sort of fallen to his knees and says, like, please don't leave. And so she's kind of given him one last chance and sort of is meeting him halfway and is just like, all right, you do have have to tell me the truth, but you know what, let's just get married right now as a show of, like... Hmm. love and shit and and so she's kind of has a hand in her own death I think in my notes I wrote like yay Elizabeth has agency agency that leads to her own demise but still thumbs up (laughs) but like yes and I think the I mean the interesting thing about like you know undead Elizabeth or whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. is I think I feel like Helena Bottom Carter as an actress seems a lot more comfortable um, when she's playing the female creature Hmm. I think because Again, I think she's a very good, nuanced actress, but I think, you know, there's a reason why, like, going into her career, she's kept doing more of the, like, weirder parts, and I think it's just because that's where she feels comfortable, that's what she likes doing and enjoys doing. Mm. So, you know, like, I think um, Robert De Niro did, like, heaps of, like, uh research into speech impediments and, like, how people move after they've had serious injuries mm. and all of that. And I'm pretty sure, like, Helena Bonham Carter just sort of, like, turned up and just, like, used her imagination. <laughs> and honestly, I think she's a more compelling creature than him. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think that's interesting that they went to that place where we kept talking about where it's kind of... Um, Elizabeth having a moment of recognition with the creature, um, mm-hmm. but and how that in a lot of texts could be read in like a feminist way. But I think mm. this movie just is not feminist. Like, no, I feel like you can't have a serious feminist reading of this film. Like, I don't know. It's just. I think like too... Elizabeth. Here you go. I think as a character, she she is strong and they do give her more to do than in the book. So, like, you know, she writes the letters to to the family to try to protect Victor. She actually goes to Ingolstadt Mm. to get him back, which is something um, a lot of adaptations after this film also do to give her more depth. Mm. Like, as I sort of alluded to before, I think it might have even been more strong if that scene was given to Clavel, like, finally just giving up on Victor and sort of saying, like, no, you've gone too far, you're not listening to me, like, there's cholera's happening outside, fucking bye. And then also, like, if he comes back and nurses him back to health, that's also, like, a beautiful moment of, like, friendship and it's like, yes, I know I said this, but god damn it, you bastard, like, you're my friend and I love you. And it would be very Lord of the Rings and I would be happy. <laughs> but I think but... the thing is, though, like, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> I, I was not going anywhere with oh, that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, no, I think the thing is that she, all her life is completely about Victor. And I know mm. that's what it is in the novel as well. But it's just, I just think seeing it on film, it makes 
her feel less interesting, less independent, like less of an actual character and person, more like just an extension of Victor as Mm. sort of, you know, his other half. Like, it's just all her life, everything she does, everything she chooses um, is somehow related to Victor. And I just, I don't know, I just find it really uncomfortable and... I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I think the compliment I'm trying to give it is that for the time this film was made, this was probably the best they could have done. <laughs> In the 90s? Or you mean when it's set? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, can you... I don't know, if you were adapting this novel to be, like, a faithful retelling, and maybe you, like, tweak things mm. to serve your own interpretation or, like, whatsoever, like, what would you do to Elizabeth to make her just less shit of a character? Well, for like, one... would you even try? For one, I would... I wouldn't really try, I think. I think it's... You know, like... I don't know. I really like the scenes where Victor was away and she was just sort of spending time with Justine and the family and, you know, reading those letters that she wrote that she pretended were from Victor. Um, Mm. And I thought that was a good insight into her character, um, into her relationship with other family members. So, like... I would probably expand on that a little bit more. I think also to have her maybe confront Victor a little bit more about what he was doing, um, how that was, like, affecting her family and things like that, um, that would be more interesting. I think, Mm. yeah, like, the source material, it's, you know, like, the way that it is a feminist text is sort of not really through um, anything that can be adapted, like as mm. in Elizabeth's actions or anything like that. Um, so I guess the other thing would be to show Elizabeth with a bit more interiority, like apart from her relationship with Victor. I think... Mm. So, yeah, those moments where she's kind of away from him or, like, offers a different perspective on what he's doing, I think those are strongest for her character. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, she really is. um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I think um, if you compare this movie to something like, the miniseries, which I know neither of us have watched in years, mm. but the Frankenstein miniseries. So there, Elizabeth is essentially very similar to this one in that she's basically still an extension of Victor, but just has like a slightly stronger personality and sort of actually just does shit, mm. but is played by an actress who is not bad, but just not as uh, nuanced or just like in of herself, like very compelling like she delivers the lines fine plays the character fine but you know that's not really the charm of elizabeth in this film or really any of the actors in this film like the charm isn't in the lines or how they're written it's just that you've got some really freaking great actors just really enjoying the world they're in ian holm plays the dad who is bill old bilbo from the lord of the rings films and it's it's great. He's cute. He's good. I think a lot of the supporting characters are very good. I really, I actually don't really like Robert De Niro as the creature. And <gasps> as we already said, I don't really like Kenneth Branagh as Victor. <laughs> um, Is that surprising? No. <laughs> Not even remotely. Um, um, I don't mind Robert De Niro. I don't love him at the same time. I mean, I just... Can we... Yeah, can we talk about the creature now? Because I think we... Yeah, sure. ...haven't really gone into, like, what's different about his story. Um, so... To be honest, I really don't like 
creatures where they're not eloquent or he's doing his best (laughs) it sounds bad but i don't like it when actors play him with like a speech impediment or you know unable to speak or something like that because i feel like language is so crucial to who Mm -hmm. he is and how he acts and like what he learns and things like that it's just it just it's not like obviously it's not anything against people with a speech impediment in real life um but i just feel like it's not um accurate to what the book was trying to get across right which is why i find adaptations which kind of make him like you know fully eloquent and Mm -hmm. Um, speaking in, like, these poetic speeches, like, more true Mm -hmm. to who he is um, in the original novel. But I think that's maybe, like, (laughs) just what I enjoy about his character, that he's, like, a pretentious bastard. (laughs) Pretentious bastard? Yeah, like, I think um, Robert De Niro's portrayal... Which I mean, you know, it's it's in the it's the script writing and the directing as much as like his performance, mm. but like yeah, it is sort of caught between the book and the Universal films. Mm. So you know, we've got like super eloquent, pretent- pretentious bastard, um, adorable mute, <laughs> and then you've just got this guy like kind of awkwardly in the middle because mm. like he. He does have a decent grasp on language, but, yeah, there's sort of a slowness to it. And I personally don't mind that because I think there is a bit of basis for that in the text because he does sort of say something to the effect of, like, the sound of my voice is not as beautiful as the blabbity blabbity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whatever he says. So there's, like, foundation for maybe he does have, like, a slow... He is does have elo- eloquence, but there's a slow slowness to him. Yeah. But yeah, certainly with this or role, there is, is a just simplicity sort of. of language. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know what to say about Robert De Niro's creature. Well, he wanted to make uh, the audiences forget about Boris Karloff, and that didn't happen. No, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I... I think okay. it's, it's just not very memorable. Visually, it's not super memorable. No. Like, it's he's effective. Not, he's just not ugly at all. Like, I don't know. Do I have Do I have high requirements for ugliness? <laughs> you do, but, like, in this instance, I think you're justified. Yeah. No, because I think he looks too human. Like, he looks like a person who just got in a bad accident and so he's got stitches all over his face, and it... It right, and he's not work. physically imposing. Like he's not, no. you know, humongous and inhuman yeah. looking. Which, to be fair, is hard to hard to film. Yeah, that's true. But but you yeah. know, they could film Hagrid. So <laughs> agreed. <laughs> yeah, it's not far off. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, now I'm just thinking about Gilderoy Lockhart. <laughs> Kenneth's best role to date. <laughs> it's just so funny. I just watched clips of Gilderoy Lockhart this afternoon and I was like, this is hilarious. Like, why did I not pick up on this when I was eight? Oh. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to say with about the creature was how um yeah, how how less sympathetic he is. Um, in this mm. film compared to other adaptations, um, even the James Whale adaptation um, and in the novel as well. Um, because I think he, like I said, he does have that sort of um, more limited speech. Um, you don't hear, like, just the sheer amount of screen time he gets isn't a lot compared to Frankenstein, whereas mm. it's about, you know, a third of the whole novel in... Um, Mary Shelley's version and he's like you know coming in and out of the um last third as well so he just isn't there that much so I think the you know the screen time the lack of screen time that he's given really impacts on the perception of him as a sympathetic creature Mm. 
Mm. Um, and yeah, and I think the way that he's he kills Elizabeth um, also is sort of like much. Yeah, it's it makes him more sort of villainy rather mm. than uh, like what it is in the novel, which where he's kind of just like. Uh, it's not a good guy. <laughs> it's yeah, but um, I don't know. Like just because you hear more of him from him directly, like he's speaking straight to you. Like here, he's more peripheral, um, mm. and I think that's also a part of the movie that or, like, an aspect of the movie that I don't enjoy as much is because they really sort of really, really, really make Victor and Elizabeth the two main characters, and you're really supposed to care about their love story, whereas you're not really drawn into the relationship between Victor and the creature, which is, Mm. like, the key sort of driving relationship in the novel. Yeah. Um, And, like... It comes out of, like, again, because they've uh, rejiggered around um, how they want to frame Victor and they're framing him as, you know, a sympathetic, like, tragic hero who Mm -hmm. does awful things for good reason and, you know, feels guilt and shit. Mm -hmm. Um, So how they've, like, set... They've set that up in a way that one of the central themes of the novel, um, which is, you know, who is the real monster, is much lessened because of that. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of lose that question in amongst, you know, all all the bullshit. Mm. (laughs) Don't know how else to put it. But, yeah, so because of that, and that is... I would argue kind of the main point of the book and that's I think why this film kind of falls apart is because it doesn't lean into the moral ambiguity or like the villainy of what Victor does or rather I guess excuses it Mm. and it's it's I mean the sad thing is it's it's done for good reason because they want to you know examine the idea of just going too far out of very, like, genuinely moral reasons or, like, you know, it's not just... It's not hubris. It's genuinely wanting to make a difference and helping and deciding to... that the ends justify the means and you have to, like, just push through some very, Mm. like, nasty stuff to get there. And they're looking at it from that angle Mm. to try to, I guess, humanise this very... I know this whole situation, but because they do that and they really want us to empathise with Victor, they lose the necessary, like, steps in then getting back to the question of who's the real monster. Yeah. Because to get that, you just, you have to have Victor be a bit more genuinely selfish, and I think this film just kind of, they... He's constantly, people point out that he's selfish. Elizabeth says he's selfish, but the film is also saying, like, no, because he's doing it for good reason. It's like, no, you, if you want to go that route, you have to have a balance of, yeah, he's doing this for good reason, but he's also, like, he's kind of doing it for himself. Like, that's what's missing. (laughs) Right. I think then it's, like, fundamentally changing the thematic Mm -hmm. focus of the story because that is the key conflict in the novel is about Mm. his hubris and you know the creature as a character is sort of like justified retribution on him for his failings in a way so if his if his actions come from a place of altruism then what is what is the key conflict here I'm just like you know puzzled because Mm. that wouldn't you know that's not then you know then why would the creature sorry why would the creature sort of be seeking retribution or like divine punishment it sort of doesn't make sense anymore Mm. like because if we're supposed to think of him as 
a good guy and like you said if that question of who's the real monster is taken away then that sort of undermines the whole need for its existence because the whole you know if we take it as a didactic text or a text that warns against hubris it's like Mm. if he's not hubristic in the first place then what is the (laughs) point of this text existing and what is the point of the creature being this sort of vengeful character this character Mm. that's like absorbed all the sort of evil um aspects of mankind then why what's the point manifestation yeah exactly it's like well then why should this movie why should this text exist in the first place i mean that's just (laughs) money (laughs) well well, yes especially since i guess you know you've still got the walton framing device at the beginning and end and it ends with like Walton learning a lesson right but he doesn't learn a lesson like it's framed like he should learn a lesson but ultimately like what lesson does he learn like don't reanimate your dead girlfriend (laughs) like okay but he wasn't about to do that anyway like (laughs) yeah I think in my notes when I was watching the film at like both the beginning and end I'm like Victor and Walton's situations aren't really applicable to one another no, so it's sort of like, oh, I'm just having the framing device because the novel had a framing device. But like you said, if they change the like central conceit of the film, um, then they have to change it thematically too. They have to change why the creature is coming after Victor. Like, what is his new role in this in this adaptation? You know, like it mm. has to flow. Like. You know, choices choices have consequences, but <laughs> words mean things. Yeah, like especially in an adaptation, uh, take Game of Thrones for example. <laughs> you know, like you change one thing in season one, and then it screwed up your season finale or your show finale in season what eight. Did they, what did they change in season one? Well, you know, heaps of things. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm like mostly thinking of the Sansa storyline, but that's because Sansa's my fave. You just wanted Sansa to happen. I wanted Sansa to happen. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, my shipping aside. Um, anyway, you you distracted me on my like rant, so that's it, I guess. Basically. <laughs> You know, think things through, okay? Like, don't just change things because Mm -hmm. they have consequences. And if you are going to change things, then you should change them and think about what the consequences are and sort of duly make other changes to reflect that. (sighs) Well done. You got there. Thank you. I think finally now I understand why I hate this movie. (laughs) After after a long session of therapy, I finally understand why this film hurt me. So yeah, after that two and a half hour, I'll cut it in two. It's fine. Yeah. So after that two and a half hour discussion, I think I finally have gotten out my anger at this film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry that I didn't contribute anything meaningful. Oh, there's still time. Um, there's because there is one more thing I would like to talk about. Okay, but no, it's the fact that, and it's kind of related to what we were saying, the fact that this film kind of instead of having certain characteristics um, expanding over across the three protagonists, mm. Walton, Vicky, and Sicky, the creature, Sicky, um, <laughs> Sicky, I don't know. Um, it, it sort of splits up things. So, like, the hubris and arrogance that is a part of Victor's character is now, like, just all Walton. And where Walton had this kind of... Um, again, the essay I was reading brought up the theme of isolation as the precursor to evil, mm-hmm. which I think is a very fascinating way of phrasing the theme. But where, yeah, where he had this whole thing about feeling isolation and seeking a friend, that's taken away. That just is belongs to the creature now. Mm-hmm. And, well, yeah, I mean, that's, like, pretty much... It's just sort of like a, you know, a 
dumbing down of themes, I suppose is what I'm saying. Well, or like yeah. dumbing down of characterization in a way that I don't think was... Uh, not necessary, but also at the same time, I like how they do Walton's character in this. Because mm-hmm. I like that he starts off as a harsh bastard, but um, as, again, I'm stealing this from an essay, this isn't my brain doing this, but he starts off as a harsh asshole. He doesn't have this seeking for friendship that he has in the book, so that he he doesn't have this attachment to Victor when he dies, which then means he doesn't have this um, loyalty to Victor to defend him against the creatures. So mm-hmm. then, then at the end he kind of weirdly has more sympathy for the creature and which leads to the, like, come with us, son. No, I will go down with this ship. <laughs> Yep, which is like the relationship between Walton and the creature that I always want to happen. Yeah, like I, I don't, I don't. I like how they they do Walton in an interesting way. It's like a little bit out of. I mean, his his uh, changing heart's a little bit out of left field, but mm. it's also kind of just like. Uh, I, I mean, at this point, the the movies, it's been two hours, and I think we're all just like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, but I think that, like, that's really interesting because in the novel, I think Walton is an interesting combination. If, if we take those themes to be, like, what the text is about, like the mm. whole idea of isolation leading to evil, which is a really good way of putting it, by the way. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I stole it. And, and the idea of hubris and like ambition, well then Walton has both that longing for human companionship mm-hmm. that the creature has, and, which tempers in the end his sort of hubristic desires. Mm. Whereas, you know, like, so they... So in Walton, I guess, like, the two core um, driving themes of the other two characters are sort of united, you know. Mm. And that's very interesting, then, that he forms that framing device. Whereas in this adaptation, yeah, because you're missing that whole um, hubristic side of it, of uh, of Victor, Victor, then his interactions with Walton don't make any sense. Mm. So... Again, I think it's another decision where they're like, oh, we'll just adapt this because it's in the novel, but not considering what their thematic interests were. Um, Yeah, and I think just to now give the film a little bit of credit, I think, you know, with this theme of isolation as precursor to evil, they don't take it far enough, but I think they do play with this kind of thing with uh, Victor more so than I mean in the same way that the the moot that the novel does hmm. but um so at the beginning of the movie you have two separate scenes where like Victor is you know during the childhood scene years section where he's like busy at work like doing experiments and first the mother comes in and she's like Victor, you need to go outside and play and sort of steals his work and, like, runs off and it's teasing and it cuts to them. Mm. He's with the family and he's dancing and then she dies and then um, cuts to another scene where, like, Elizabeth comes downstairs and he's doing his experiments. She's like, oh, no, come outside and play. And it also, again, does a similar thing where she's, like, which I guess is a little bit adds to the eatable, incestuous thing of all, but it grabs one of his instruments is sort of like mucking around with him and like draws him out and play. So stepping away from the incest, but I think, and you know, the fact of like women's roles being to like help the male protagonist, which is, you know, problematic, but stepping away from that for a second, it does play into this idea of like the dangers of isolation. Mm. And I think the importance of the family dynamic in that, like, it's constantly, as a child, air quotes, child, <laughs> uh, Victor is brought away from this danger of isolation mm. by his family. Mm. And then, which I think is a really good expanding on the novel because you can, you know, read that in the novel, but it's in no way, no way explicit mm. except just in the sense of, like, he seems to have a happy childhood, he goes to college, and he just seems to go a bit nuts mm. because there's no one really looking after him. So you can, you know, read that something similar is happening, like it's constantly his family drawing him out of his shell and in making him, like, not go too far. Right, and I think that's where it's, you know, I think we raised that idea before, like earlier where we were talking about his relationship with Clavel 
it's then such a good setup. Um, I agree. I really like that interaction that he has with his family where they're pulling him away from his work and not letting him be lost in Mm. the science aspect of things. But then, you know, like lean into that in the rest Mm. of the film because he's then not alone at university. Like he still has Clavel and Waldman. Um, So he's not retreating into isolation. So, Mm. you know, that theme is not seen through. That could have been done so well if they just, I, I, I don't know, really, you know, thought of it. Really, I think just thought of it in the sense that this author has put it isolation as the precursor to evil Mm. because that's such a valid way of putting in the text because it's like yes when victor is alone not talking to people Mm. that's when he does bad shit because no one is calling him out or like pulling him out or whatever and that right but like you could have done that so like good in this film because you set that up in the childhood years and you know you've got that that's what happens with the creature that's also you know, kind of, it's very much Walton's story as well. Like, he's constantly trying to push people, his own ambition is clouding him to, like, the well-being of his ship. Mm. And so he's sort of, and it's because he doesn't feel connection with them. So this sort of isolation he feels from the other human beings in his care, or however you want to put it, is dehumanising them, or just, like, making him become less and less caring about their situation which I think in the film actually comes across maybe better than the book does it Mm. in a way because Walton is a harsher character Mm. and is just set up as not giving a shit but then um has a sense of connection with the creature and uh, learns some kind of lesson I'm well, exactly. Uh, I, it works. I mean, that's, yeah, that's like learn that's the point. Exactly. It's like such a good setup, but it doesn't go anywhere because of other decisions that they've chosen in the um, in the movie. And I think conversely, you have the creature, and he's not shown as being like he is isolated, but he's like his isolation is not shown in as much graphic detail as in the novel. So then you don't Mm. see that progression into evil as readily, I think. Mm. Um, I mean, what I would say in the like sort of creature's tail portion in defense of the creature's tail portion of the movie mm. is that it is given more subtlety and nuance than the rest of the film. Like it's quite, quiet and I think it is whether you like what the creature's doing or not, I think it is well acted and it is there is touching elements of it and I think it is quite close to the book and again it's all visual storytelling mm-hmm. which I think so I I mean it's not my favorite part of the movie just because it's not my favorite part of the book. I'm like much more interested in like the moral ambiguity of like the scientist or the create creative hmm. is like why I find this book interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'll outright admit it right here. I sort of am much less interested in the creature than Victor. I don't think Victor's more likable, but I just think he's a more interesting character personally to me. Mm-hmm. So in adaptations, I'm much more interested in what they do with Victor than the creature. Mm. But I think I'm kind of alone on that one. Most people are more interested in the monster. No, I think I think Victor is a much more interesting adaptational character because I think mm. how people decide to adapt Victor really speaks more to how they understand the text. Um, mm. So I think, like, yeah, the ways that um, Victor is adapted is speaks a lot more to is a lot more different like a lot more varied and different across media and um like speaks to sort of you kind of understand the author of the adaptation more in how they Mm. portray victor than how they portray the creature like i have to say i like the creature more as a character but i don't like what i find interesting is that dynamic between creator and created Mm -hmm. so for me it's not either or like I like their um 
yeah, I like the relationship or the conflicts between them. So, anyway. Mm. But, as like, as a person or, or a non-person, I like the creature a lot more. Um, I find okay. Victor, like pretty despicable like I don't think I would like him in real life so no one no one would like Victor in real life (laughs) oh god how many stars do you give this movie out of 10 out of 10 fuck man that's a lot of stars isn't it usually out of five (laughs) okay but you can have half stars in five which means it's 10 (laughs) um okay let me think about this <clears throat> um, okay. Maybe like a, okay, fine. You say yours. A, no, no, no. As a no, I want to split this into as a movie out of ten, and then as an adaptation out of ten. As a movie in of itself, I think it is reasonably harmless and more or less more or less I say hesitantly stands up on its own so like maybe 5 out of 10 okay Uh, as an adaptation I mean I think this film's true (laughs) the crimes of Kenneth Branagh this film I think it's true film. It's true crime. Is just calling itself Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> to be honest, that just kind of. I think that puts it into a trap with an actual fans of the book because it's not really Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's I don't know Francis Ford Coppola's, Kenneth Branagh's, the angry screenwriters, like. It, it's her plot more or less, but I don't know if her themes are precisely in here as they should be. Mm. But like at the same time, it does do interest. Like there are not a lot of interesting faithful adaptations of this book. Mm-hmm. And I think whilst this film does get a bit tedious towards the end, it is still entertaining and has enough of itself. I mean, it's just five out of ten. <laughs> it's just average across the board. All right. Okay. So for me, as a film, I would give this like three out of ten because I found it really boring, unfortunately. Like, I just, I don't know. I just find it a boring film. <laughs> What can I say? And then as an adaptation, I think it tries, but the lack of thematic coherence really hurts it. So I'm going to say like four out of ten. There is speculation apparently that, um, I mean, it's a companion piece to Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mm. but there was also like speculation that it's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because the title Frankenstein is still owned by Universal. Oh, really? So they, they couldn't call it just Frankenstein? No, like, they, I think, like, legally they wouldn't have been able to. And okay. as possibly then Universal also owns Dracula. That, like, very well could be the reason all right. they are called that. Well, all I can say is that I'm really looking forward to Guillermo del Toro's Frankenstein. Is that a thing that's happening or just you hoping I think he said he really wants to adapt it, and I really hope it's happening. Um, Because, yeah, I think he would do a really good job. Just because he understands the themes, I think, a lot better (laughs) Mm. than most filmmakers would. And he's really into monsters. He's into monsters, and he's into moral ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Like, his fish monster could, like, bite the head off a cat, and you don't hate it. I thought that was really funny. I know other people <laughs> felt differently. And you like cats. <laughs> yes, I do like, like cats. I like cats. See, I keep seeing these articles that say Guillermo del Toro wants to make Frankenstein. And I'm like, yes, do it. Someone give him $100 million. 
Uh, I feel like he could even do it on like a really tiny budget. And yeah, it would still I think be he fantastic. could. Like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein had a budget of forty-five like million. Yeah, I don't think it quite made it back. No, it made a hundred and twelve million in cinemas, or maybe altogether. But it made its budget back. Okay. Yeah, like, it was kind of a financial success. It's just everyone hated it. Yeah, it makes me curious, like, who actually went to see this film? <laughs> well, I mean, it was did come out in, like, the heyday of Kenneth Branagh's, like, Shakespeare films. So, and, it, like, it was being publicised um, on both sort of highbrow fronts and lowbrow fronts. Mm. So there's plenty of people who would have seen it because, you know, it's a monster film. It's also like, you know, it's Kenneth Branagh, so it's got an artsy film. And this is, again, like probably the problem with why the film itself is not super cohesive is because it was sort of just like we want to get all the audiences when it was when it's kind of just like, no, you should just sort of focus on one of the audiences Mm. and not piss everyone going to see it off. Well, the other thing I wanted to bring up was that, like you said, it's kind of during um, Frankenstein's um, Shakespeare films. Um, Frankenstein's Shakespeare films. Kenneth Branagh's Shakespeare films. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh's Shakespeare films. Oh, God, I'm really tired. See, he is a brilliant actor. You can't distinguish the two anymore. (laughs) He's disappeared into the role for you. Um, But we never talked about how... Um, Frankenstein is turned basically into Hamlet in this one. Yes. Well, in in Kenneth Branagh's mind, yes. So when he was approached to um, direct the film, he was, I think, working on a stage production of Frankenstein. <laughs> 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 Hamlet in some capacity. And then about two years after the Frankenstein film came out, his um, big bombastic Hamlet film, which I like, mm-hmm. came out in, I think, 96. Mm-hmm. So, like, this production was very much, like, sandwiched between, like, two big Hamlet projects. Mm. And, like, yeah, in a few articles or interviews I've read uh, with Kenneth Branagh, he's associated or, like, linked it to the Hamlet story and or, like, discussed it in... Um, reference to, like, a family tragedy, but also Mm. sort of described um, Victor and Hamlet as two sides of the same coin in that Hamlet is trying to philosophize death Mm -hmm. and then Victor is trying to, like, escape it altogether. Mm. I think is the gist of what he keeps saying. I mean, personally, I'm a bit just kind of like, those are kind of two different things, but sure. Yeah, I think they're very different, but the way that he seems to have approached Hamlet and Victor is similar, which I'm like, mm, yeah, no, I'm not a fan of that. And a hail to the no. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, see if I can... Yeah, it's a family tragedy like Shakespeare, I think was a direct quote of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, replacing intellectual pursuit... With physical action is what he says, and which is precisely not what Victor does. Like he's like completely intellectual. He's zero percent physical. <laughs> Again, he is a nerd. He does not go outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're. Brandon doesn't explain it this way, but I think the Victor and Hamlet are kind of similar in. You know, the indecisiveness after the fact, because, yeah, then, like, after Victor, you know, does Mm -hmm. things, he's then, for the rest of the book, super introspective and kind of like, to make the female creature or to not make the female creature, to save Justine or not save Justine, to, you know, all that, all that, all that crap. So they are kind of similar, but I don't think Kenneth Branagh looked at it in the most obvious way. Instead, he was just all like, no, it's about life and death and shit. And also by a lot of these interviews I've been reading, it seems like this film kind of sent Kenny into like a early onset midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> like he just seems very sort of like glum and just kind of like, oh, what is the point? 
of life mm. and death. This film has been two years of my life and has drained me, which I think is more to do with the fact that, you know, it was two years of his life and it was getting really bad reviews. Quite possibly. But, like, I don't know. It's one of those things. It was kind of like he was still... He had a lot of, like, big movies under his belt, but he was only, like, 33 and had never done, like, a Hollywood-funded thing and was given a lot of freedom. And then, you know, you had the producer giving him shit. You had publicly giving him shit, apparently, and the screenwriter publicly giving him shit. And it was just kind of like... If you didn't want him to have so much control, first you shouldn't have gotten this type of director to do this... And then you should have, like, been on his tail or not given him so much freedom. You can't complain. You've put yourselves into this situation. Well, I think maybe he was just unfamiliar with the way that the studio or Hollywood works, maybe. But honestly, like, I don't find that he's a very auteur creator. No, he's not really. So, yeah, maybe he had a vision. I think he is a good director. Go on. I think he's a good director, but I wouldn't necessarily call him an auteur or having, like, a very distinct style. No, and he doesn't... I don't think he has very clear thematic preoccupations. Um, nah, well, he like he likes making his Shakespeare films. Yeah, but that sort of, you know, interest mm. in a particular but, body yeah, of I, work rather than themes... Yeah, like, I think his, what he's renowned for is the fact that he was very good at turning Shakespeare into films or sort of interpreting Shakespeare in very... Popular ways. Classical. Hmm. In popular ways, but also, like, keeping them within, more or less within their, um, I don't know, cultural... Context. Place. Con- yeah, context. <laughs> place. Uh, except for, um, oh, he did do a weird, like, musical version of one of the films, but that didn't do very well. <laughs> like, he's he's not a, he's not known for his, like, radical takes on Shakespeare. He's tried to make them, and they were unsuccessful. Yeah, no, I think he's, yeah, he I, works best as sort of, like, doing these classical adaptations. But maybe that's mm. where... It's a flaw when you approach texts like Frankenstein, which kind of need a bit more change as well. Like, mm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, tis tis true, tis true, tis pity, tis true. Oh yeah, no, there was the, the only other like pointless point that will probably get edited out because it's pointless. Is you you remember in the nineteen thirty one film uh-huh. where. I, I, is it that the Baron Frankenstein was complaining that, like, the staircase didn't have, like, banisters? <laughs> and then in this film, there's, like, a grand staircase that doesn't have banisters. Do, is that, like, a... Is, is that a cue? Is that a reference? Because just, like, when I was watching the film, I was like, oh, yeah, this film has this massive staircase without banisters, and it's, like... Yeah, and, and it's, it's so unsafe. <laughs> it's so unsafe. And, like, you see at the end, like, Victor's, like, running up the stairs, like, with dead Elizabeth, and for some reason she's wrapped in this red blanket that's, like, spilling out behind them. And I was just like, this is one of those things where this is stylistically beautiful, but this film has not set itself up as, like, um, weird or, like, um, magical realist or whatever you want to call it, stylized enough for this to be, like, not weird (laughs) like it's just kind of like no if you're gonna make a stylized frankenstein which 100% do it it would be great this is why we watch gothic movies Mm -hmm. but you have to like set it up otherwise it's just like what the fuck are you doing Mm. and like no yes no because and then when elizabeth dies it's because she falls off the she jumps off the staircase because there's no banisters (laughs) it's unsafe (laughs) So, so yeah, that that was my uh, final thing I, I felt was really needed to be pointed out. Also, at the beginning, Mama Frankenstein describes um, Victor as becoming a very earnest young man. <laughs> I thought we would get to the point where we remembered that Ernest didn't exist in this adaptation. Yeah, he does not exist. I Yeah, Justine's mother exists in this. 
some random servant named servant who's called Claude exists in this. And he's great. He only has like two lines, but you know, he's really determined to help the family. And, um, you know, the DeLacy's have two children. And yet. Ernest. Save Ernest. <laughs> Save Ernest from. What's the word when you're like just from anon- anonymity? <laughs> or like. Adaptational redundancy. redundancy? Yeah. Look, it's not his fault he's pointless. <laughs> To the whole story. It's like, well, here's the thing, and I will end it after I say this, because we've been talking for three hours. But here's the thing. You could include Ernest in an adaptation in which you want to give Victor a bit of redemption in a very easy way, because Ernest is the one person who survives. And so Victor kind of leaving Ernest or sort of sending Ernest away could not sending Ernest away but like leaving Ernest could finally be Victor taking responsibility for his actions on like giving up his last connection uh, to humanity and to family in order to allow Ernest to like live and yet it is never done tis a simple very simple solution and, like, does what I think a lot of creatives want to do in giving Victor a bit more, um, I don't know, forgivability or what have you. Mm. But, like, no. No. No, indeed. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Like, I think Ernest is sort of unexplored potential. Oh, fuck, why have we talked for three hours? Can we just <laughs> shut up? Yes, no. I will, we'll, we'll stop talking now, as you've so politely requested <laughs> of me. It's, it's like that new movie, Yesterday, where mm. um, every, no one remembers the Beatles except one person. <laughs> no one remembers Ernest except us. Yeah, but you know the, like, second, the other brother in the Frankenstein, the what? N- no, the, the other brother in Frankenstein, Ernest. They're like, oh, you mean William? N- no, 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 like, his younger brother. Oh, are you talking about Henry Clavell? No, no, his brother. <laughs> <laughs> this is legitimately just us having any kind of Frankenstein discourse with anyone who isn't us.